Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another at-home edition of uh, our Banner Lecture Series here at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions. It's always great to see everyone virtually. Uh, as always, a deep gratitude for all of our members who make these programs possible. Your support is greatly appreciated and absolutely essential to helping these programs continue. So thank you very much. Uh, just a reminder uh, that this is a discussion uh, and that you can ask questions uh, at the end of the lecture. Uh, if you would like to do that, please log into Facebook or YouTube uh, to ask a question and we'll make sure that we relay that to our speaker. A couple of program notes before we get started. Uh, coming attractions tomorrow, uh, also at noon, uh, is a continuation of our Curators at Work program, uh, which is entitled New to the Collection. Uh, this will be an opportunity for you to hear from our curatorial staff as they share the remarkable stories behind their favorite objects that were added to our collections in 2020. So please be sure to tune in for that. On December 22nd uh, at 7 p.m., we'll continue with our movie myth busting program. Uh, this is where you get to watch a film in advance uh, at your leisure. Then you can log into an interactive Zoom presentation where we chat about what's true and what isn't. Uh, on the 22nd, we'll be screening Liberty's Kids across the Delaware. So please uh, join us for that. Uh, and then finally, our next banner lecture, which will be in the new year on January 14th at noon when, uh, at noon when Scott Dawson will join us uh, for his uh, talk about the Lost Colony and Hatteras Island. Uh, today's lecture, I think, is near and dear to the hearts of many of us uh, who had a long-standing affection uh, for the James River. Uh, it's been a centerpiece of Richmond, uh, but by the mid-20th century, it had been abused and neglected. Today, the river draws its visitors to its wooded shorelines, its restored canal, and its spirited rapids. At the local level, this transformation was the result of citizen action, public-private partnerships, difficult decisions by governmental leaders, and the hard work of thousands of advocates and volunteers. Today, our speaker is uh, local author Ralph Hambrick, who will chronicle the events, the projects, and the controversies that brought about this dramatic change in his most recent book, Transforming the James River in Richmond. Uh, Ralph is a professor emeritus in public policy and administration at Virginia Commonwealth University. He is a former chair of the Falls of the James River Scenic Advisory Committee and a former co-chair of the James River Advisory Council. Ralph is a former whitewater canoe instructor, a raft guide, and all-around river enjoyer who does his writing from a home office overlooking the James River. However, he is at his satellite location in Texas today. So please imagine that he is overlooking the beautiful James River as we hear about his lecture today. Please welcome Ralph Hambrick. Thank you. Thanks very much. And thank you to the 
to the museum for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about the James River in Richmond and how it's changed over the past 75 years or so. And thanks very much to the many people who helped me in preparing the book. Um, it was a, a long process and I had dozens of people who helped me in innumerable ways. Clearly the change in the James River over the past 75 years has been one of Richmond's success stories. Um, now the, the focus of my comments today <clears throat> is really the 10 mile stretch roughly from Bosher's Dam down to Rockets Landing. That's a stretch of river that has a great deal of variety. It's got smooth flowing flat water. It's got some middle level intermediate rapids. It's got some rapids that have a little bit more kick to them. And it's got the tidal section on downtown. It's got, <clears throat> excuse me, wooded shoreline. It's got some areas that have been highly developed over time, particularly in the downtown, downtown area. So it's a, a river of a great deal of variety. But before we get into that very specific stretch of river, let me take a real long view of rivers in general. It seems to me that there are really, one can designate three periods of river history. The, the natural period, which lasted thousands or millions of years in which human beings had very little impact on the river. The utility period in which the river was really used as a tool uh, for hundreds of years, it was used as a tool for by making adva taking advantage of water power for transportation and for waste disposal, among other uses. And then we enter the amenity period, which I think we are in now, and we've been gradually entering into over the past dozens of years. It's just the beginning of that period, I believe. The focus of my comments and the focus of the book is really that transformation from the utility period to the amenity period from the time the river was used as a tool to the time when it's used really for recreation, for human enjoyment and so forth. My shorthand for that is from sewer to park. One of the nice features about the current use of the river as educational tool, if you will, as for enjoyment, is that the current use of the river for enjoyment and recreation is very compatible with the health of the river. But there are two major transformation themes that go through everything that's going on in the city of Richmond and many other rivers around the country and the world in terms of the transformation. The health of the river is one, and access to the river is another. Let's take a quick look at the conditions in Richmond at mid-century. Number one, the river was polluted, and we'll take a look at that and see what has been done there. There were threats to the river. The expressway is one of those, and I'll make a few comments about that. There was no public access to the river. The downtown riverbanks were cluttered with abandoned industry. The canals had been disrupted and further threatened. Dams were blocking fish passage. There were floods, of course. The views were obstructed and other views threatened. And the river was ignored. 
at mid-century and somewhat beyond, and even today to some extent, when someone talks about going to the river, they talk about some other river, not the James River in Richmond. Well, but at some point, who knows when, Richmond remembered the value of the jewel in its midst. Great accomplishments depend on a vision, and the vision of a Richmond centered on the James pleases the eye and invigorates the spirit. Now, that vision, I would argue, did not come with some sudden epiphany. It's a vision that developed and grew over many years and is still growing and still changing. The vision of what the James River can be is still in process. But let's take a look at some of the elements of the transformation that has occurred. Take a look at the matter of pollution. It's very difficult to be inspired by a river that looks like this, of course. It is clear that the river, the James River in Richmond was very much polluted at mid-century and beyond, um, partly based on the historical belief that the rivers, well expressed here by a Virginia legislator, but believed in many other words by others, the rivers of Virginia are the God-given sewers of the state. It was very thought to be a very natural and appropriate thing to use the rivers for wastewater disposal and treatment purposes. After the Civil War, Richmond began to create sewers. Indoor toilets were invented and people began to have sewers and those sewers ran straight to the river. That uh, sewers straight to the river practice lasted for decades really well into the last century. There are lots of different <clears throat> comments and statements that one can find about how polluted the James River in Richmond was. But here's just one that kind of struck me as being representative. Beside the city's deserted upper terminal, Gillies Creek pours raw sewage into the river. At the mouth of the creek, a large circle of green scum widens turgidly. The odor of sewage and of things long dead clutches at the nostrils. Here, no aquatic life of any sort survives. Our river is a sewer. So the, it, clearly there were some problems that needed to be dealt with. And dealing with the pollution problem was one of the first that had to be addressed for the transformation to occur. Uh, the, the beginning of dealing with that problem had some resistance. Uh, the, it, the city's efforts were pushed along by others, and the city later took quite some initiative. 1946, the General Assembly in Virginia passed the State Water Control Law that created the State Water Control Board. The Water Control Board said the to the city, construct sewage tr treatment facility. You, you need to build a facility that will take care of this sewage problem. And the city responded, hey, we would really like to do it. I paraphrase, of course. We really would really like to do it, but it costs too much money. Uh, that resistance actually was supported by quite a number of folks. Uh, the former mayor uh, dug his heels in, uh, some members of the General Assembly supported the notion that Richmond ought to be allowed to delay considerably in terms of dealing with the pollution problem. 
And here's a statement from the Richmond Times-Dispatch editorial that kind of takes that position. We endorse and believe in the anti-pollution program, but the polluting has been going on for generations, even centuries, and we do not feel that Richmond's present financial condition justifies the expenditure of $13 million for one single capital project over the next four years. So there was some widespread resistance. But in 1952, the city formally decided that it was going to proceed with cleaning up the river. Um, there were three elements that needed to be dealt with, that needed to be done. One was to create a treatment, a tr sewage wastewater treatment facility. And that was initiated and completed in 1958 at the primary treatment level and a minimal treatment at that time. And there have been continuing improvements, many, continu many improvements that have continued over the years. Secondly, there needed to be interceptors or to collect the sewage that was coming down the hill, so to speak, toward the river and transport that to the facility. That is a project that took decades to carry out uh, 50s and 60s and 70s and on forward uh, taking care of that infrastructure matter and the third was a kind of a nagging problem that continued on more even more than the other needs the combined sewer overflow problem that was a nagging problem that that is is still being addressed today but a great deal of progress has been made as you probably are aware, the, the essential problem with the combined sewer overflow was that the wastewater from toilets, etc., went into a pipe, but the stormwater from rainfall also went into the, exactly the same pipe. In dry periods, the sewage carried to the wastewater treatment facility with no problem. It went straight there, didn't go into the river. But in a rain event, the system was essentially overwhelmed and much of the, the mixture of rainwater and sewage ended up going directly to the river. Um, there were two options that were considered back in the 60s and 70s for dealing with this problem. One option that was considered was to separate the combined system and create two piping systems, one for stormwater and one for wastewater. And the second option was to construct large holding basins to contain the overflows until that excess could that excess volume could be sent to the wastewater treatment plant and taken care of. <clears throat> the decision because of money was the holding basin. But there was one dissenter, Newton N. Caro argued that separation was the only way to go. He said that I am told it would cost upwards of 300 million to separate the sewers in Richmond. Well, so be it. He argued that anything less than that would come back to bite at a later time. But his, his advice was not heeded. The first location that was considered for a retention basin was actually the Richmond Dock or the extension of the James River and Kanawha Canal from the eastern end of the city down to Great Shiplock. Um, that 
in fact, was approved as the location for the retention basin by several of the appropriate bodies, city council and others. But after a good deal of protest, that decision was, was changed. And the decision was made to construct retention basins. The first of these was the Shaco Retention Basin, which was completed in 1983, which captures millions of gallons of that combined sewage and rainwater. Um, later on, the system was expanded with the Hampton-McCloy Tunnel in 2003, a very long tunnel beneath the ground, well underground. It even goes well under Maymont Park. Well, those efforts by the city were recognized. They, they had come about in part because of lots of pressure from the EPA, from the James River Association, and from other organizations. But uh, those organizations, at least a couple of them, rewarded the city with, with awards that were given in 1999. A long title, the National Combined Sewer Overflow Control Program Excellence Award came from the Environmental Protection Agency and the James River Association gave the city the Friends of the James Award. Well, there's still more to do in cleaning up the river. It's far cleaner than it was in, the, in mid last century and a great deal has been accomplished. Most of us don't worry about swimming in the river anymore as we at one time did. But there's still more to do. We need to complete the combined sewer overflow infrastructure. The General Assembly gave the city a nudge or actually a requirement to do some more work on that in this last session. There is a need to do, do some things with stormwater pollution. The stream restoration is on the agenda. We need to continue to upgrade treatment as time goes on and educate the public and pet owners about good behavior in, in terms of preventing pollution. Well, <clears throat> one could think about a variety of things. I often think whether or not Ancaro's advice might have been wise, that would separating the sewers in the 70s actually have been the thing to do. And of course, that decision has gone by the boards. But we still can ask what kind of wastewater and stormwater actions are needed now and on into the future. But let's move on to other things. <clears throat> One of the key events, I think, in making the river what it was today is something that was not done, namely the expressway that was turned aside or did not occur. The Richmond Metropolitan Authority in 1966 revealed in the newspapers its plan for an expressway that would go along the south side of the river from the, what is now the Powhite Bridge to the, to the Huguenot Bridge and cover a, an important wooded area along the south side of the river. Uh, some, the expressway would have gone right along the path that you see in this photograph, right along the wooded banks and out into the rapids in the river. But there was immediate protest that grew up. And in fact, there was some protest or some concerns and expressions of concern even before the plans were made public. But early on after the plans were made public, the Stratford Hills Citizens Committee came into being and pro protested and argued for different routes and that th this particular route should not be used for an expressway. And then later, the Richmond Scenic James Council was formed, another citizen's 
group that protested the building of the expressway in that location. The motto of the protesters, particularly the Richmond Scenic James Council, was once destroyed, it can never be replaced. Uh, and after seeing the site, a very persuasive motto, I think. There were a couple of key events that went into the protest effort, along with all kinds of lobbying and letters and um, articles in the newspaper and so forth. One of these was called Discover the James on Columbus Day. Ironically, that day, that Columbus Day event was the same day that the James River Park downstream was dedicated. But the that event was one in which the public was invited to come out and see just where the expressway would be placed and the damage that it would be done, that would be done. Uh, to dramatize that impact, uh, ribbons were tied on some of the trees to show how high the expressway would, would go up when it was constructed. And markers were placed out in the river to show how far out into the river the expressway would go, how much of the river would be taken up. So that, that was one important event uh, that, that occurred in the process, in the protest, as well as a, a little bit later in the same fall, a joint meeting between the Richmond Scenic James Council and the Richmond City Council. This was not just a regular meeting of city council, but a special meeting strictly focused on hearing from the Richmond Scenic James Council what they considered to be the destructive impact of that, that expressway. Uh, that that led to um, the decision, or the decision was made not too much later to um, discontinue that leg of the expressway. This is one little note, kind of an aside note, I think, but it kind of indicates the passion of some of the early protesters. One of the leaders of that protest effort wrote this in a note to another member of their group. I find that after years of unsuccessfully trying to lose weight, I am doing it now by forgetting to eat. Even my rings fit. If we don't win the first round, I may even get down to where I ought to be, unless I develop a neurotic appetite to compensate for disappointments. So as you can see, there was a great deal of uh, passion that was expressed. I think in many respects, the, the expressway protest and it symbolized an emerging appreciation of the river. It didn't cause that appreciation, and, and it wasn't the end. It wasn't the end of it all, but it, I think it symbolized a kind of an emerging appreciation of what the river could be. Plus, there were two very specific positive outcomes. One, Pony Pasture Rapids, one of the most popular spots in the James River Park system, has been preserved, and if the Expressway would have been there. There might have been something perhaps on the other side of the river, but it would have been lost. Secondly, the Virginia, uh, the, the Virginia General Assembly, through the leadership of the scenic, of the Richmond Scenic James Council, and with the concurrence of the city, designated the James in Richmond as a Virginia Scenic River, and as a part of that, a little later established the Falls of the James. Scenic River Advisory Committee, which has been active since 1972. Well, one of the protesters argued that it wasn't the protest at all, but simply economics that caused the 
expressway not to be built in that location. Uh, others say, hey, if it hadn't been for the protest, it would have been constructed there. Maybe it required both some bad economics or concern about economics and the protest for that project to be turned aside. Moving on. As I mentioned, one of the primary themes of the transformation of, of the river has been access, public access. It, there was no public access, access in the mid-70s, um, in the 70s and 80s during that period. It is difficult to explain to people now that before the 1970s, we couldn't get to the river without trespassing on somebody's property. Now, no doubt a fair amount of trespassing did go on, but um, nevertheless, there was no, no public access at, during that period. Well, the James River Park changed that. There are a variety of ways, a variety of points of access that were made available uh, through the James River Park system. Part of it, as this picture on the left shows, is, is a structure that allows people to walk across the railroad track and on down to the park in the main section of the James River Park system. And of course, the picture on the right is the suspended bridge underneath the Lee Bridge that leads to Belle Isle, which was one of the one of the additions that made it possible to get to, to the park. And there were launch sites of a whole variety of launch sites which were constructed to allow boaters to get to the river. Many of those launch sites had a great deal of involvement and much of what goes on in James River Park, I might add, is done by volunteers. Um, this the this is the 14th Street takeout being constructed uh, a number of years ago, and it was largely done both by park staff but a large volume of the labor by volunteers. Well, access access was granted, and so they did come. So they came. They came to hang out on the rocks at Pony Pasture. They came on paddle boards. They came in canoes. They came in rafts. Some trips more successful than others, perhaps. Um, and here's one of my photos, one of my favorite photos, this kayaker. I often imagine that he's thinking, do I really want to head down this rapid or should I just decide to turn around and go home? But I presume that he did and he probably had a very successful trip. But they came to sit on rocks, to chat, they came to sit on rocks and type on their laptop computers. They came to fish and there were some good sized fish to be caught. Fishing in the tidal areas, fishing in the upstream um, areas, in the falls areas. They came to run on trails, they came to climb on rocks, they came to sit, bring their dogs out for a day on the river, came to swim and sunbathe, classes of kayakers and trips of children riding on the trails all became very much a part of the James River Park system. Now, when the park was first developed, one of the issues was how, how much infrastructure, how much development should be a part of the park, or how natural should it be? One, one view of the park was that it was going to have lots of pavilions and picnic tables 
and bridges connecting islands, even even a an ice skating rink on Belle Isle, a restaurant, a vendors, all kinds of things of that sort. But the argument was made, including a study that was done by, by a consultant that argued that it should be natural. And even the park designer, uh, Mr. Abbott, claimed that his primary intent was to make the park a natural unencumbered place. The only place to build anything was in those areas which had already been disturbed, which were not natural areas. So natural one. And I think in strolling through the park, one can see that uh, nature has been preserved to a large extent. No doubt it has been part of the chore of leaders of the change River park system to maintain that decision, to keep it natural. There's always pressure to do more, to have more activities, to have more uh, services available. But resisting that has been part of what I think the park staff has done. The naturalness is caught, captured nicely by the motto of the Friends of James River Park, a little bit of wilderness in the heart of the city. Now that organization, by the way, has done lots to support the park including leading the effort to create the new master plan. Well, keeping it natural has made it a nice habitat for wildlife, both on the river, on the water, and on, on shore. Otters who re that require pretty clean water to, to survive uh, are there, are found there. A coyote is found there. A salamanders are there. Now, one thing about it, though, some of the wildlife, while not dangerous, some of that wildlife can be rather rude, as you can see by one of my favorite photos captured in a stroll along the river. Well, the park has become a very popular part of the river. There are almost 2 million visits to the James River Park in 2019, and we're on pace to have even more visitors this year. So. One question to think about is whether the James River Park System can handle the increasing number of visits and still be an urban forest, still be the wilderness, the little bit of wilderness in the city that we like, or is some rationing strategy required? In fact, the James River Park Master Plan gives a great deal of attention to the tension between too many people and the naturalness of the park and in an effort to find the right balance. Dams. Richmond has essentially five dams from the tidal, going upstream from the tidal section on up to Bosher's Dam. Now, dams during the utility period, building dams was a sign of progress. Now, removing dams is considered to be progress. That's true not just in Richmond, but true around the country and and really around the world in many in many places. Um, so Richmond set out to, to at least breach these dams, and it got a good start with a House uh, House of Delegates resolution in the in the General Assembly in 1981. Uh, the General Assembly recognized that anadromous fish, American shad, and others 
are prevented by the low profile dams at Richmond from moving upstream to their historical spawning and rearing areas. So the resolution and some dollars were thrown in for Richmond to get started, for Richmond to get started uh, breaching, making it possible for anadromous fish to move upstream. So the effort began. The Manchester and Browns Island dams, which run together pretty much over on the north side of the river, were breached in 1989, largely through a, a, just a dynamiting process to cut away through the through those dams. The North Belle Isle Dam didn't require any human effort at all. Nature took care of that. The Camille flood in 1969, knocked a hole in the dam right at the north end of Belle Isle, and that breach has continued to expand as time has time has gone on. Each flood knocks a, another piece or two out, and so it's, it's uh, wider and wider. Z Dam was one that was pretty solid. The, the floods had not done any damage to it, but um, it, it was decided that it could be breached with a with a notch, not an explosion, but a carefully constructed notch uh, out in, in the river. That notch was hoped to be a passageway for paddlers, as well as passageway for anadromous fish going upstream to spawn. However, it was discovered after it was constructed that at least at some water levels, and at least for some not so skilled paddlers, it might be a dangerous place. And so while it's not prohibited, uh, paddling through, through Z Dam Notch is not encouraged. Bosher's Dam was a bigger, bigger project in terms of breaching. Just uh, creating a notch or blowing out a section was not possible on Bosher's Dam. So a more elaborate design was developed, namely building a fishway. That fishway was scheduled to go into service in the early 90s, about the same time as the ZDM notch, but it got delayed by several things. One, the weather caused some delays, but perhaps even more significant, the fact that it was going to cost more money than originally planned got in the way. So the James River Association, the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, and other Others that had secured or provided the funds had to go back to find some more money to complete the project. But it was completed in 1997, even before the project, the fishway was completed and those dams were breached, the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries had started stocking shad in the upper James with the hope that they would be imprinted. And then after the breaches would occur, they could would return to those spawning areas, those traditional and historic spawning areas. Well, after all the dams were breached and the fishway constructed, the first year or two or three, the shad runs were pretty pretty good, but then they became more and more disappointing. Uh, and over time, it was discovered that there were just too few shad returning and that probably the stocking was not having the effect that was desired. So that's that stocking was stocking of uh, fry upstream was discontinued. Um, maybe there's still some hope. I often think, would the full dam removal 
with full dam removal and all five dams have produced more robust spawning runs of American shad and others. But I'll leave that to more people who know more about fish than I do. Well, floods, rich floods are a very natural part of the rhythm of rivers. They clean out a lot of debris. They do, a, they, they have a lot of impact and are a natural part of, of what rivers do. But if you build in the floodplain, those floods can be very damaging. They can cost a lot of money and, and do a great deal of, of damage. And that, of course, became very dramatically in the minds of Richmonders, first with the Camille flood in 1969, and then the Agnes flood in 1972. And uh, shortly, Shortly after those floods, immediately after those floods, I might say, lots of folks went into action, uh, getting the Corps of Engineers to revive and update uh, some flood control plans, but essentially lobbying Congress. Some, the Richmond Downtown Committee and, and others spent 20, 25 years lobbying Congress to get approval and to get the funding to build a flood wall, which in fact was was done in the, in the 90s. And the flood wall was built on the north side and the flood wall on the south side. Now, I often wonder whether an alternative to the flood wall would have, would have been preferable. Um, it seems to me that in terms of the larger macro trends that a flood wall really runs counter to making the river more natural and it runs counter to the trend of making the river more accessible but of course that's a that's a decision long since gone perhaps just my bias is getting in the way the but i still think as well that we might do something to minimize the eyesore that parts of that flood ball tend to be there was a lot of effort early on to do something about the visual impact uh, and some successful and not nearly to the level of success that was hoped. Take a look at downtown Richmond. Of course, that's where the flood ball is, but there's a lot more to the downtown Richmond um, transformation of the river than just the, just the flood wall. The downtown area had been built and rebuilt many times. Um, and as Brenton Halsey, one of the leaders of the downtown development effort to stated back in the early 90s. In the 20th century, Richmond turned its back on the river and buried its riverfront in dilapidated industry, railroads, highways, and general neglect, exacerbated by frequent flooding. So that pretty well captured kind of the state of things in, in downtown Richmond. But things began to, to happen and people were not satisfied satisfied with that situation. Here's some of the examples of the shoreline clutter that uh, existed in downtown Richmond. It clearly is far more than recreationists throwing beer cans on the side of the river that need to be picked up. Um, the, there were uh, numerous structures and residue of um, industry that had, a, had been very robust on the river at periods of time, but had kind of lost, water power had lost its importance and those industries moved on. 
even the canal was part of that uh, downtown clutter in some respects, but it's one of those that shows this photo indicates a part of the canal that some folks hoped could be restored. Thus far, this particular one has not been. Well, there was a strategy to deal with the downtown riverfront. The strategy was essentially to create a public-private partnership and use that public-private partnership to one, reduce, remove that industrial clutter costing millions of dollars and to use the restored canals as the connection to the river. And so that project got underway with Richmond Renaissance, the Richmond Riverfront Development Corporation and various uh, organizations. They cleaned up Belle Isle, obviously a big project, you can tell just from looking at this, and began to restore some of the canals, uh, restore essentially the primary one being the Hacksaw Mill Race, not the James River and Kanawha Canal, but the Hacksaw Mill Race uh, down from Tredegar on down, uh, on downtown, and then some new construction, and then on down to Richmond Dock. Um, one of the serendipities that occurred was that the Environmental Protection Agency required that there be a conveyance on the north side of the river carrying wastewater and so forth to the retention basin. And that the decision was made, timing was good, the decision was made to place that in the bed of the canal that was being restored so it saved money on both accounts. Um, made it economically feasible in a way that perhaps it would not have been without both of them together. Big change in the downtown uh, area and from days gone by, uh, the Great Turning Basin uh, on the photo at upper left at one time was a significant part of Richmond's downtown area. That Turning Basin moving on to the photo down also to the left at one point turned into a parking lot and later, no picture here, but uh, became a high-rise office building and hotel. Um, but the turning basin idea was not lost and a new turning basin was was constructed. A new location, not the old historic location, but a new location um, along the canal walk that, that serves as a focal point for the canal boat rides that are available now. So big difference between you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago and now. Browns Island, how it was on the left, and Browns Island now, uh, a green lawn with a canal on one side and the James River on the other. A lot still, there's, Venture Richmond is now underway with a plan to consider a variety of new activities or new uh, additions to the whole Browns Island area and both ends of that area. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Of course, the canal walk was the, a big feature of this downtown development using the canals as a connection to the river. Um, the canal walk and the boat rides are a popular tourist attraction there. Segway riding is done as much along the river as well as lots of other places. But there are, in addition to Canal Walk, there are a variety of other th developments that have gone on to make access to the river more possible. The T. Tyler Potter Field Memorial Bridge, 
frequently just called Teapot, um, is one of the, the major ones. That was the first big project of the 2012 Riverfront Plan, and it allows one to, to cross the river and to stand right above the river and see the rapids up close and personal. And there are other access points along the river. Not too many years ago, it was not possible to sit along the, the James River and have a view of the river and have a sandwich or a cold drink. But now, now that is possible and there are likely to be more opportunities as time goes on. Well, what else needs to be done on the downtown riverfront? And what threats may emerge? There are a variety of plans underway, both for the tidal area and for Browns Island and other spots, which I won't get into here. And threats, there are always threats that seem to come along, so we need to be alert to those. One of the features of the riverfront transformation has been using it as a showcase for history. It is a natural showcase because much of the United States history, a good deal of significant history happened right along the banks of the river. So it's a natural place to showcase that history. And those folks working on riverfront access have done a good job in bringing out that history. There are interpretive signs like this uh, talking about um, African Americans on the river. Um, there's a whole series of things about African-American history, including the slave trail, which ran along the river. Uh, a memorial to Box Brown, uh, who clearly was less claustrophobic than I might be in his adventurous ride from Richmond to Baltimore, nailed in this box with a patch of water and a few crackers. The Civil War, of course, is a big part of the exhibit there, the Confederate Navy Yard, uh, historic Treader, and the museums there. Here's one of my favorite spots. Uh, this, this is at the end of the Teapot Dam Walk, but it was constructed well before the Dam Walk project carried the bridge all the way across the river. It's a place where comments of individuals are captured in from April 1865, when the capital of the Confederacy fell to the Union Army. Very interesting dis display. There are many medallions that are inlaid in the, the canal walk that provide lots of little vignettes of history that has occurred along the river. And other places in which the river is the backdrop for um, some in historic interpretation. The canals are a part of that history that are on exhibit and, and dealt with. Um, the bottom lower right is, is Great Shiplock, which was re restored to working order another um, 20 or so years ago, but it, it is not in working order at this point, but still thought about as, a, as something that could be restored to working order and the Richmond Dock used for boats and so forth. One of the interesting spots is so-called Washington's Arch up near the pump house. It's kind of often difficult to find, but it is an arch from the old James River Canal, which is not, which had preceded the James River and Kanawha Canal, but supposedly George Washington himself took a bateau ride through this arch. Some folks are trying to keep it a little more cleaned up than it has been recently. 
This, the top left photo is one of my favorite historic pictures because it kind of captures eras of history. Um, and modernity all in one photograph. Mayo's Bridge, another piece of our history, as well as his pump house, known for dances on the parties and dances on the top floor there. Pump house has been under investigation by quite a number of groups to find ways to restore and make it a useful historic structure. Hopefully some good success will come of that. But let's talk about one last topic here, views. Uh, views are an important way in which the river is appreciated, in which the river is enjoyed, and it fits very fully into the amenity function of the river that exists now. The most the, historically, the most important view, the most famous view at least, is the view that named the city, namely that view from Libby Hill Park, which is said to be legend or fact, the inspiration for naming the city of Richmond, because this view resembles the view in Richmond upon Thames in England. And that review thus far has been very well preserved in Richmond on Thames and pretty well preserved here in Richmond as well. This is a view, this is a picture of that view when the Lehigh silos were still here, but the city purchased that property and the silos are no longer there. So you can see the view now without the silos and without that obstruction. One worries about some other obstructions that may come into play. Even the trees might grow big enough to block the view, who knows? But there are lots and lots of views of the river, as I say, one of the great pieces of entertainment for us Richmonders and visitors as well. This from the Rockets Landing area over the tidal section, looking upstream to downtown Richmond. But there are plenty of views in which you don't even feel that you're in the city. You, It's back in that wilderness and cityness is just not a part of the feel with a view like this. But that cityness is kind of fun when you're paddling down the river and you go around a bend and you see downtown Richmond off in, in the distance and then it becomes closer and closer. Um, it's a, a fun, fun adventure for those who haven't taken a raft ride or other trip down the river, highly recommend it. And there are views of course from offices and from conference rooms, this from a view from Dominion Energy. Up close views too are very important, very inspirational, very scenic. Uh, lots of those, one can find them just everywhere. Some of them downright dramatic. Um, you can sit and watch this and say, hmm, how could I paddle through that? Another way that I find to be very delightful is the river is used as a subject for art, photographic art, as well as paintbrush art. Um, and it, there are many, many people who spend a great deal of time taking fantastic pictures or painting fantastic pictures of the James River in Richmond. Here are just a few of the ones that I think have just great artistic merit, ones I really enjoy seeing. I. I suspect that I'll never be a great photographer because photographers tell me 
it's necessary to get up early in the morning to get the best light and the best photos. And so I guess I lingered too long on my cup of coffee to get there early enough for the best photos. So I appreciate all those people, Scenic Virginia and other photographers who've shared these photos with me. Um, and a question to think about, what kind of strategies are feasible for protecting key view sheds? And which views are most important to protect? This is one, this last question is one that uh, some folks have attempted to address. Scenic Virginia, the Landscape Architects Group and others have attempted to bring folks together and say, what are the most important views in Richmond that we should protect? Well, I think this, the James River in Richmond has a very bright future. I think it has a bright future because of those things that have been done, cleaning up the river and so forth and so on, all those things that have been mentioned and many more. But I think a big part of the reason that the river has a bright future is that there's a new set of attitudes, a new set of behaviors, a new ethos, if you will, about the river. The key component of that is that the river is valued. Not only is the river valued, it's valued for the health, its naturalness, for the beauty of the river, and those, those are promoted and protected by quite a number of, of groups and individuals that are growing in, in number throughout Richmond. So I think the river has a, has a, a bright future. But there's still more to do. We need to continue to improve water quality. We need to continue implementing the 2012 Riverfront Plan. We need to implement the Park Master Plan. And with some thought, and as time goes on, I'm sure we'll come up with a number of other things which need to be done. Well, to conclude, let me just say that the vision of a Richmond centered on the James pleases the eye and invigorates the spirit. And it certainly does that for me. Thank you. Thanks, Ralph. That was incredible. It's, it's just so heartening and heartwarming to see the, the transformation of the river over the past half century. Uh, so thank you uh, for doing that and for being a, a, a key uh, role player in, in all of that. Uh, we've got just a few minutes for, for questions. If folks would like to log into Facebook or YouTube to ask a question. Um, the question that comes to the top of my mind that you you touched on as a question, and I'm curious your thoughts about is how do we uh, how do we balance preservation and access going forward? We've done so much to create this uh, magnificent resource that people want to take advantage of, but you know how do we balance um, being able to preserve that in in a near as pristine condition as possible while allowing as many people as possible to enjoy it? Yes. Well, I think that's a, a very fundamental question which has a lot of people think about. Um, there have been there have been some ways and, and really it's a balancing act. I mean at some point at some point there would be too many people in the same place at the same time to preserve that. Um, but it but it is a kind of a balancing act. Some of the efforts that have been made to help keep the numbers 
in balance. One is not building as many parking lots as might be desired. That, but that's not necessarily a very popular kind of approach for those people who get there a little bit late and all the parking is taken and there's no place to park. So, you know, there can be some conflict that is generated in attempting to achieve that balance. But the other part of it is, I mean, of course, you've got several different areas of the river. Part of it is the park system, uh, but part of it is the more downtown section where the numbers are not nearly so, so important in terms of detracting from the, the desirable characteristics that, that the river has. Um, I think you know, the numbers of folks on Browns Island uh, during a festival will kind of control itself. Um, but but in other, other areas, it's important not to, to, to get too overwhelmed. One of the ways the park system has done it is create some areas where it's very difficult to get to and where wildlife is more protected and some in other areas which are much more open to to uh, visitation but it is a difficult um, question that people need to pay attention to the, the the management team needs to pay attention to as things move forward and there's also always the question of preservation too what about historic structures you know what about the canals to what extent should the James River and Kanawha Canal be preserved and perhaps restored? And some folks are working on that, uh, restoring part of that canal that goes well beyond what has been done thus far. Um, and, you know, it's at one point in the past, it would might have been nice to say, hey, let's, let's preserve the turning basin, the great turning basin in downtown Richmond. It would be kind of neat to have that great turning basin in downtown Richmond, but it was thought to be not the highest and best use. So we have a hotel and office buildings there. So, you know, there's, there's always tension in that. So uh, just, I guess, one last question since we're getting close to, to closing. Um, as, as, you know, a deeply devoted advocate to this, what, what's your next uh, step or adventure or role to play in helping to preserve this incredible resource? Okay. Well, um, you know, that's something that I've, that I've been thinking about some and haven't really arrived at any conclusion. Part of what I'll do is keep doing what I've been doing, namely enjoying the river, namely going to lots of meetings. You cannot imagine how many meetings it takes to preserve a river. So, uh, with a variety of different organizations, the so that that's a piece of that uh, piece of an answer to that. I've thought about writing more about it. Um, certainly, do whatever I can to support organizations like the James River Association, like the Falls of the James Scenic River Advisory Committee, like James River Advisory Council, like Scenic Virginia, um, Sierra Club, many organizations that work very hard to help preserve the kind of the key uh, features of the, of the river in, in Richmond. Well, I, I think I speak on behalf of everybody that uh, we greatly appreciate uh, not just your time today, but all the efforts you've put in over the years to, to help to bring back the James and to make it the jewel that it really is. So um, thank you very much. And 
Thank you all for joining us today. Uh, you can uh, order uh, a copy of Ralph's book, Transforming the James River in Richmond, uh, from our museum store. Uh, I believe that there's a link on the chat. Um, so please join us uh, for our next banner lecture, which will be in the new year, uh, again on January, 20, uh, January 14th at noon. Uh, in the meantime, everyone, please have a happy and healthy uh, holiday season and new year. And thanks again for tuning in. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.